Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. As we come to the uh, close of this series entitled Ask, one of the things that uh, history teaches us is this. When God aims to do a great work, the very first thing that he does is to call his people to seek the power of prayer, to bring about a, a spiritual season of breakthrough. His people begin to pray, Lord, breakthrough. Lord, breakthrough. Most often, he creates a, a spark of desire in the hearts of a few, and then he fans that into flame, and that flame spreads, and as, as his people pray, seeking him, asking him to work in fresh ways in them first, and then in others, God begins to act, and God begins to move. And change that was impossible happens. The broken are healed. The lost are saved. The prodigals are brought back home again. Very often, these kinds of prayers are joined to that great forgotten or neglected partner of prayer, that discipline of fasting, that strange, that uncomfortable practice that seriously threatens one of our favorite pastimes. And yet, as we've seen, the Bible presents fasting as an occasional necessity for knowing God's will, for receiving His guidance, for seeking God's help in times of great trouble, for receiving greater spiritual strength for our living, and for seeing God restored to His rightful place in our hearts and in our minds. But the first and the greatest opportunity that comes with prayer and fasting is the, street, is the treatment for our chronic spiritual condition, the treatment of sin in our lives. It is, as we said last week, uh, an effective means, a very effective means of spiritual detox for followers of Jesus. And to that end, last week we began looking together at Matthew 6 and Jesus' teaching on fasting, where he makes clear that fasting with prayer is expected at certain times in the life of his people, which means that it is not to be neglected by them in those times. He also makes it clear that fasting as expected is always rewarded. Immediately, two questions surfaced for us last week. We've been pursuing the answers to those questions. Why fasting? And what is fasting's reward? Why fasting? And what is fasting's reward? Jesus says, it comes with reward. What is the reward? Now, asking these questions is helping us to address the, this, this neglected discipline. It's also helping us to see how it is we can be careful not to miss this reward that the partnership between prayer and fasting, Jesus says, brings. We started looking last week at Psalm 19 as an example of the kind of prayer 
that partners well with fasting, and we want to return there today. And so I want you to turn with me in your Bibles or take a worship Bible and turn with me to Psalm 19. You'll find Psalm 19 on page 456 in the worship Bible provided for you, uh, just underneath the chair in front of you, or, or if you're seated, seated on the front row underneath you. Psalm 19. Now what we saw last week, and I want us to start again here, is that in Psalm 19, David is declaring two, three facts. The first fact that he declares is that God can be seen and known in his creation. Reflects and underscores what Paul teaches in Romans 1 and 2, and that is that uh, we know the power of God. We know the presence, the power, the existence of God by way or through his creation. That is one way. The second fact that he touches on here in Psalm 19 is that we also come to know something of the glory of God by way of his laws and his testimonies, his self-revelation. In his word, in his written word, he reveals to us who he is, what he is like, what he wants. And David says in a, in a uh, rather remarkable way that when you encounter the God of revelation, the God as he reveals himself in his word, when you encounter God there, you, you find yourself changed. You find yourself drawn to him and you find yourself loving him when you see him as he really is. Now, having said that, then he, he shares with us a third fact. Having recognized the power of God in his creation and having recognized the character of God in Revelation, David has also come to see and recognize something about himself. And as he's gotten a glimpse of this God who is holy, who is radically different from us, who is pure, the comparison is immediate. And David says, I recognize that even though I have a love for this God that I found, in uh, his word, I recognize that I have a sin problem. And he goes from celebrating the God of creation and the God of revelation to praying and asking God to help him with this sin issue that he has in his own life. And so he says in verse 12, who, Lord, can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression if you will do these things. Then he closes by saying, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So out of his experience of God's glory discovered in his creation and out of his encounter with God's character and his will found in his revealed world, word, David discovers his own personal capacity and his tendency towards sin. And he goes then from praising God to pleading with God to help him. And because fasting for repentance also aims at loving God and dealing intentionally with sin, David's response here in this passage becomes for us a valuable guide in terms of how to fast with prayer. And specifically, David shows us four things in this passage. 
that uh, uh, loving God and dealing with sin require, and they are these, owning the sin problem that we have, seeking the help that we need, receiving the gifts that only God gives, and then celebrating the champion that God is. Four steps, four steps, four steps that he models. Owning sin, seeking help, receiving the gifts God gives, and finally celebrating the champion that God is. Celebrating the champion that God is. Now, we looked together last week at owning the sin problem that we have, and I challenged you to uh, spend some time to prepare. And uh, I, I gave you a, a method for owning sin, taking a blank sheet of paper, taking a pen, taking a couple of hours, spreading that out before the Lord, opening up His Word, and saying to Him, Lord God, show me, show me my sin, and writing down specifically what He shows you, and then I taught you a process for working through that as a way of owning sin. But beyond owning sin, David shows us there's a second step we need to move to. And again, this is the kind of praying that best accompanies fasting. And that second step is, is one of seeking the help that we need. David says, verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. God, I need your help. When it comes to sin, I need your help. You'll notice in these two verses, David not only shows us that he has two specific kinds of sins. We looked at those last week. There are hidden sins, sins that are present in our life, but we don't see them for several different reasons. And then there are sins that we do see because they are sins that we deliberately chose. We took the active step of choosing to do what God has, has said we should not do or to avoid doing what God has said we should do. David not only shows us that he has these two specific kinds of sins in his life, he also shows that he needs, as a result of that, two specific kinds of help from God. First, for these unwitting or these unknown sins, the help he needs is a release that comes from God's pardon. And so he pleads in 12b, declare me innocent from hidden faults. The verb translated declare me innocent means uh, clear, cleanse, cancel those, those hidden sins. The essential idea is pardon or forgive me. This is exactly what Jesus prayed for when he prayed on the cross for those who were, were uh, executing him. And uh, as he prayed for their supporters, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. At the heart of it, they don't know what they're doing. David is praying, Father, essentially this, don't let the sins I can't see keep me from you. I think the idea here, the spirit behind this passage is treat me as innocent of my hidden sins until you show them to me and they're no longer hidden. For my heart, my heart in this matter, my heart is to always be open to the sin that you show me. And when you show me my sin, I will be ready to deal with it as soon as you show it. There are some sins that are hard for us to see. God is working out of us that old nature of ours where sin was so natural, so normal. Sometimes we slip into that and we, we don't even recognize it. 
Any of you who are married, you know your spouse has things about them they cannot see, and you have tried to tell them. And it's going nigh unto 10 years, and you've been telling them, and they still can't see it. And so you, you have an understanding now of what's happening here, but it is so much a part of your spouse's nature that they just can't do that thing that you, you have pleaded for them to do, and, um, and yet you haven't given up, and I'm so proud of you for that. Um, where there is God, there is always hope. But there are sins in our lives that can be present, can actually set themselves up because they're so close to our nature, the, the nature that God is changing and transforming, we don't see them. But David's heart is, please treat me, declare me uh, innocent of these hidden faults. I know that all sin is serious because all sin is dangerous to the life that is truly life. So I'm praying not just about the sins I know. I'm praying about the sins I don't know. Now, I wonder how many of us pray about the sins we don't know. If we grew up in the church, most of us were, were taught at some level, some way, to pray dealing with the sins we know, to confess them, repent of them, and that kind of thing. Here, David is so serious about the power of sin, he's saying, I recognize there are some sins that are even hidden from me. I don't see them yet. I need your help in showing them to me. But would you please don't keep me from your presence? Please let me, let me, let me keep coming into your presence because if I, don't, if I don't make it into your presence, I may never see those sins. And I know all sin is serious because all sin is dangerous. And I, I, I want even that exposed. So let me keep coming. Secondly, for willful sin, the help David needs is for God's power to keep him in close check. I want your pardon. I want your pass on those hidden sins until you show them to me. But I also, I also want your power to keep me in close check. He says, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Restrain pull back. Here David is asking to be helped at least in two ways. Proactively, he's asking to be enabled to avoid willful sins, to have his will strengthened in resolve to obey and please God. If I want to please God, if that's my, my first desire, I won't please myself. I'll, I'll stay out of sin. Reactively, he's asking that uh, God would restrain him from the smaller willful sins, which easily open the way for greater willfulness and, and uh, that breed greater sin and can dominate life. He says, let them not have dominion over me in, in verse 13b. What he's doing is important for us to see. He betrays sin, as Paul does, as a living, dynamic thing, a force with power that can rule, can dominate, can control a person if it's allowed to remain, sin is serious because all sin is dangerous to the life that is truly life. It has a power about it. Now, some believer in this room will surely say to me this morning, well, all right, I, I hear that. And David is asking that sin would not have dominion. But in Christ, sin's overall dominion has been broken in believers. So how might this apply to us? How does this apply to us? Does this apply to us? And the answer is yes, it does. You see, while sin's overall dominion or rule in, a, in the life of a believer has been broken 
in that believer's life so that sin no longer has the power of final say. The reality is that in a believer's life, sin can still establish a stronghold in that life and and exert incredible influence. That stronghold can mark or dominate his or her life for a season with the result that they lose Christ as their first love and come to be ruled by a love for something less. So David shows us first that believers need God's pardon for those hidden sins that we commit but don't recognize, those sins which are so much a part of that old nature that it takes us a while to recognize them and then in Christ root them out. Secondly, he shows us that believers need God's power to win the battle with their willful sins. We can't battle sin on our own. We cannot modify ourselves. We cannot keep ourselves from sin unless we have help. That, of course, is the role of the Holy Spirit. He convicts us of this willfulness that leads to sin, but he also gives us the ability to say no to our fleshly yearnings and yes to Christ so that his holiness rather than our sinfulness become characteristic of our lives. So David not only demonstrates the importance, watch now, of owning the possibility of having sins we can't see and owning the reality of the sins we can see, He also underscores the need for us to deliberately seek God's help in dealing with them. If we're to be spiritually healthy and whole, we need his pardon and we need his power. Not just once, but again and again and again. I can't defeat the sin nature in me by myself. I can't defeat the sin nature in me by myself. I've got to be, as a matter of lifelong practice, asking God constantly first to pardon me from the sins that I cannot see. And I might add as an aside, I should always be praying too, now Lord, show me those sins because I, I need to deal with them because they're still dangerous. They're still dangerous. I also need to be asking God constantly for the power to deal with my own willfulness. My own willfulness. To keep that willfulness in check. So that those chosen sins are few and so that they don't grow. Now, I want you to see with me, thirdly, the gifts that that God gives. Not only should we own the sin that we have, not only should we seek help with that sin, but thirdly, we should pursue the gifts that only God gives when it comes to that sin. Notice at the end of verse 13, David says, If you'll take these steps, Lord, then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. When God's pardon is at work, when his power are at work in our hidden sins and our willful sins, Believers discover that they receive certain gifts that he gives, the experience, first of all, of blamelessness, and secondly, the experience of of innocence of great transgression. What is he talking about? Well, let's see. 
First, the gift of blamelessness has to do with the condition of being faultless, complete, lacking nothing before God. This is the condition that that, uh, we are in when sin is not present in our lives. And when sin is not present in our lives, that is when we're capable of fellowship with the Holy God. And it is also then that we are very useful to him. We're able to hear him. We're able to follow his direction. We're, we're, we're ready to obey him. And, and he can take us and use us in situations for his glory and for the good of other people when we're walking in that blameless condition. In other words, when we're walking without sin in our lives. Now, none of us will be completely blameless. However, in the same way that we can have seasons of sin, we can also have seasons of blamelessness. Now, that isn't absolute perfection, but what I mean by that is this. As I am walking with Christ, I can live in victory over sin. I can do that. I can live in seasons and periods with victory over sin. Now, it it doesn't happen for nine years, and then suddenly I mess up. But it works more like this. It works more like this. I'm walking in the power of His Spirit. I'm I'm living and I'm, I'm choosing those things that He would choose. I'm willing what He wills. If sin comes into my life, I deal with it quickly so that I confess it, repent of it, change direction, that that becomes the ongoing pattern of my life. In other words, I'm learning to say in a blameless life, Yes and yes and yes and yes to his, to his will and fewer no's and no's and no's and no's. And, and, th- and that is the pattern. It is a very strong pattern. It keeps the fellowship with God open and it keeps me useful in, in his service. It is an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. It's um, called being filled by the Spirit. It's called being led by the Spirit. All of those things are New Testament phrases that describe this, this life. And David is saying, uh, uh, if you will take these steps, if you'll pardon me, and if you will, you will restrain me, then I will be blameless. But their second gift, that's a gift God gives, the capacity to live in that way with victory over sin. The second gift is the gift of, of innocence of great transgression, which is the gift of being free of greater sin, greater in the sense of being more consequential. By identifying and dealing with presumptuous sins early, the small transgressions of this kind of sin are kept from becoming greater transgressions. Great transgressions are often most easily identified by those sins causing the greatest regrets. So David is praying, would you restrain me in such a way that even my small sins are dealt with and are not allowed to grow into something larger something that brings me deep regret. So it looks like this. It looks, it looks like dealing with a willful choice to lust quickly as a choice to refuse adultery later. It means dealing with willful anger quickly in the moment as a choice to refuse violence later. It means dealing with a choice to forgive rather than not to forgive as a matter of rejecting a life-consuming bitterness later. Because sin always starts small, it can be made to stay small when dealt with and removed quickly. As we've seen, the gift of being kept 
innocent of great transgressions comes in the form of the gift of restraint, being enabled and empowered to resist and deny greater sins as soon as, as sin is recognized. So blamelessness, the blamelessness that helps fellowship with God and the restraint that comes with, uh, uh, from committing greater sin are two of God's great gifts that come only from Him and only from seeking His help. These are the gifts that God has, and these are the gifts that God gives to those who are His, who deliberately seek Him for them. And prayer with fasting powerfully positions us for both. Keep me free of sin. Keep me free of sin. Where it shows up, grant me the ability to see it and deal with it, is what David is ultimately saying. I know you have these gifts for me. And I've got to have these gifts. I've got to have these gifts. What David is, is showing us here is something that uh, we don't always like to see. What, the reason he's asking for help is because of the condition, the reality that his heart is in. We've got this incredible problem. Jeremiah 17, 9 uh, really unpacks it for us in, in, in perhaps the clearest way. Uh, Jeremiah says the, the human heart is desperately wicked, is sick. Who can know it? Who can understand it? Who can guide it? Who can direct it? David is simply here acknowledging, God, unless you help me, God, unless you help me, unless you pardon me, unless you give me that power to, to deal with this tendency towards sin, I'm, I'm done. I'm in trouble. I, I'm never going to get free. I've got to have your help. The sin is so serious. The consequence is so real that this is part of my life and this is part of my living. Oh God, 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 pardon me from the hidden. Help me with the hidden. Keep me in your presence. Father, Father, for the sins I know, for the sins I know, forgive me. Help me deal with them quickly. I don't need to hold on to them. The longer I hold on to them, the worse they get. The more damage they do. The more damage they do. Here, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I've got to keep praying this way because I know I don't even know my own heart. I can't, I, 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 I can't manage it on my own. I can't direct it on my own. My own heart will foam, fool me. I need for you to keep stepping in, to keep stepping in, keep stepping in, keep stepping in. Finally, David says that owning our sin problem, seeking God's help and receiving the gifts 
of blamelessness and, and, and uh, restraint that only he gives leads to celebrating the champion that God is in verse 14. He says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. But don't miss this end, my rock and my redeemer. Here's a final request within the larger prayer for God's help. Now, I want you to watch this. Now, watch carefully. Here we go. The mouth David speaks of represents the source of one's words. The heart represents the source of one's thoughts or, the, or of one's meditations. It's important for us to know and to note that meditation translates a word that is used as a musical term. And it can not only mean reflection, but it also can point to melody. It is, in other words, David is saying, Lord, I'm praying that my words will be pleasing to you, but I'm also praying that uh, 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 that my heart, my heart's reflections, and watch this, my heart's melody might be pleasing to you. Let the words of my mouth and the song of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Every human heart has a song. And David is asking here that his words and his heart song be made and kept pleasing to God. David is saying, I pray that you will so work in me that you will find worthy, acceptable, and pleasing every word that my tongue speaks and every thought that my heart thinks and every song of devotion that my heart sings. David knows and we need to know that every word spoken comes from the heart and every human heart sings some song of worship, some song of devotion. And it is singing some song of, of worship and devotion all the time because we all live worshiping something or someone all the time. Your heart lived all week singing. Your heart lived all week worshiping something. And what we can miss if we're not careful is this. Our struggle with sin for which we need God's help is fought. Not in terms of where our eyes look. Not in terms of what our hands do. Not in terms of where our feet go. A lot of us live our lives as followers of Jesus thinking I've got, to, I've got to control where my eyes look. I've got to control what my hands do and I've got to control where my feet go. And if I can somehow figure out a way to control my eyes, control my hands and control my feet, finally, 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 then I'll be living as God has called me to live. It's a great strategy of Satan. You keep trying that and you'll keep failing because you're not understanding how you're wired. Here's the reality. The words that come out of our mouths, the deeds that come as a result of our hands, the places that we go and the things that we see are ultimately driven by the song that our hearts are singing because what we love, we always live for. 
What we love, we always live for. And I've taught you, and I've taught you, and I'll keep teaching you and, uh, until I'm done teaching. If you really want to know the condition of your heart, listen to your words, watch your hands, trace where your eyes go, and see where your feet send you, and you will know the condition of your heart. You will know what it is you really love. You will know what it is you really are longing for. You will know what you really worship. So ultimately, finally, to live the life that God calls us to live means living constantly listening to the song our hearts are singing. Some of you are going, I didn't know my heart could sing. Well, now you do. I don't know if your heart can carry a tune in a bucket or not. I don't know. But I know every person in this room has a heart that is singing something, the praises of something. And I know every single one of us is in a terrible mess. Because the heart is desperately wicked, because it is diseased, because we can't even know our own hearts. Our own hearts are capable of deceiving us and we not, we not even know it. Because that is true, it means that we are in a, 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 an impossible place. My heart is black. My heart is shot full of sin. Uh, my heart enjoys sin. My heart is twisted and broken and just messed up. Some of you are agreeing with me, and I appreciate that very much. It's so easy to listen to other people confess. That's the condition of my heart. And, of course, the Bible says that's the condition of your heart as well. And that means that we're in an impossible place. And it finally explains why it is that David is crying out for God's help. Because the reality is we cannot change our own hearts. The tendency of the human heart, the Bible says is always to evil, just as sure as the sparks fly upward. And here we are. In that dire human condition... I can't fix. I, I'll never be able to fix the things that I say. Where my eyes look. What my hands do. Where my feet go. I'll never be able to fix. Oh, I can modify my behavior. I can't change it. 
I'm in a mess. This whole thing is hopeless. I can't. The things that God calls me to do, I can't do. The sin that is so dangerous for me is so natural to me, I keep doing it. Paul put it this way, I know that there lives in me no good thing. I'm in a mess because I've got a heart I cannot change, which means there is a life I cannot live. And that is the life that only God wants and demands of me, and it is the life He deserves for me, and I can't give it. And what that means ultimately is I do need help. In fact, I, I don't need help from you because you're, you've got trouble with your heart. You, 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 you can't fix yourself. You're not going to fix me. I, I, need, a, I need a champion. I, 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 need, I need somebody who can come and do for me what I cannot do for myself. I'm leaning heavy into this because our culture keeps telling us, our culture keeps insisting that, that humanity is basically good and just every now and then we mess up. I've got to have help from somewhere beyond myself. Because I am the single most dangerous person to myself on the planet. And I can't change me. See, David had this figured out. Do you notice how he ends this, this passage? He says, You, O oh Lord, are my rock and my redeemer. He offers two powerful pictures of the God that he is seeking and the God that he is celebrating. And I want you to notice he doesn't say, my God is a rock, and he doesn't say, my God is a redeemer, but rather he says, God is my rock and God is my redeemer. To say that God is my rock is to celebrate God as the source of ultimate security and shelter and protection, even provision, in spite of David's wayward heart. And from this, it isn't but a short step to see God as the redeemer, the savior, the deliverer of David's heart. And so David celebrates God as his great heart redeemer. The title redeemer was loaded with meaning for the Israelites. It was a title used to describe one who was nearest of kin to a relative who needed help. 
The Old Testament taught Israel that any duty which, was a, uh, which a relative couldn't perform by himself or for himself had to be taken up by the next of kin, whom it called his kinsman redeemer. And so, for example, if a relative was sold into slavery, the kinsman redeemer was to redeem him or her. If a relative was slain by someone outside the clan or the tribe, the kinsman redeemer was to avenge him or her. And so the kinsman redeemer was one who took the role of another's protector, defender, liberator. He was another's champion. Powerfully, David presents God himself as the ultimate redeemer of his own heart, and of his own life. The story of the Bible, of course, ultimately shows this redeeming God exercising that role in one who was to come. The Old Testament tells us and the New Testament shows us that there was one who would be the ultimate near relative, the ultimate kinsman redeemer. There was coming one who though being very God of very God would take on human flesh and come to be related to us, a kinsman. That there was coming one who had come into this world, this world that needed help with its failed heart. That there was coming one who would take up the duties which is Relatives couldn't perform by themselves. And because this world and its heart had been sold into slavery, this kinsman redeemer would come to redeem them, to liberate them. Because humanity and its heart had been, had been slain by an enemy on the inside, had been defeated and destroyed, this kinsman redeemer would avenge them. And so this coming kinsman redeemer would be one who took up the role of humanity's protector and defender and liberator, their champion. And it was through his incarnation, his life, his cross death, his resurrection, that Jesus is revealed to be that great champion of the human heart that we thought we would never find and never see. And so at the end of this psalm, living as we do on the other side of the cross and the resurrection, David's prayer helps us to see that Christ is the one our prayers and our lives should celebrate as our champion. He is the one who alone can change the heart. He alone is the one who can change the song my heart sings. He alone is the one who can change the direction that my eyes look. He alone is the one who can change what my hands do. He alone is the one who can change the direction that my feet go. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. This great champion, this great liberator of the human heart. It is Jesus who can take the twisted heart and make it whole again. It is Jesus and only Jesus who sets us free. He teaches me a new song to sing, a new song of worship, a new song of love. And when he teaches me that new song to sing, he then gives me a brand new way to live.
So fasting with this kind of praying is a powerful method to discover just what it is, to discover just what song it is that our hearts are truly singing. The heart is so desperately wicked, you can be singing spiritual songs and using spiritual words to worship something less than Jesus. All believers need an effective means of spiritual detox. All of us need an ongoing method for finding, facing, and dealing with sin so that we can return to Christ and keep turning to Christ alone as our greatest need, our greatest treasure, our greatest champion. Fasting partnered with prayer is one of God's very best methods for doing just that. David's prayer helps us then to answer the questions, why fasting and what is fasting's reward? Well, fasting with this kind of praying is a powerful means of facing the awful situation when our love for God is contradicted by the presence of sin. If that is you this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, You know how awful that is. Its reward is discovering that in spite of our sin, we can be restored and restrained by His love again and again in Christ to be made more like Christ. What is more, this, this champion that God has sent has made a way for, for uh, the, the songs and the words and the deeds of the past to be cleansed, to be, to be removed so that the blamelessness we need for fellowship and, and for fullness and usefulness can be ours. Here's the point of the message. When love for God meets the presence of sin, fasting with prayer enables us to plead both for His pardon and His power to defeat sin and causes us to celebrate the Redeemer who has made both the pardon and the power to defeat sin possible. So what does this mean for you? Pursuing personal love for Christ and finding personal sin in the process are part of the life of every believer. And what matters is you're pursuing personal love for Christ and finding personal sin. What matters most is not the sin you find, but what you do in Christ with the sin that you find. Fasting is one Christ-recommended, Christ-expected discipline that you have available to you. To deal with the sins you know and the sins you don't and make yourself available for Christ in fresh ways. To that end, I'm calling us as a body to seek the Lord in prayer all week and in fasting for all or part of the week beginning tomorrow, October 1st. When you entered, you received a guide to help, and included in it are 
prayer and fasting explanations, would you take that out as to why fasting matters and what kind of fasts are possible? You'll find that right in the uh, very beginning. Included also our devotionals on prayer for each day, Monday through Saturday. You'll also find a commitment card inside that shares how long you will fast and uh, how you will fast. Day, two to three days, four to six days. Will your fast be a complete fast, a selective fast, a partial fast, a media fast, some other kind of fast? I want you to take that out and look at it with me. The reason I'm going to be asking you uh, in just a moment to complete this card of God's leading you to join us in this season of prayer and fasting, fasting is that we want to have a sense of how God is working among His people. We also want to pray for you as you make this commitment. When God's ready to do a great work, He always calls His people to pray and often with fasting. Now listen. This is something God must lead you to do. God must call you to do. We talked about it last week, and now is the time for a decision to be made. We won't take these tomorrow. We won't take them three months from now or three years from now. Today's the day. Now's the time. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.